Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, good morning. Um, thank you, Pastor Paul, and thank you, Teen Challenge, for just uh, sharing uh, the pulpit with me, for allowing me the opportunity just to, to share with you. Um, and I also just want to thank you guys. Uh, last time I spoke for a Wednesday chapel, I didn't really know a lot of you well. Um, I didn't even know Pastor Paul that well. Um, I didn't really, you know, didn't have my feet wet with Teen Challenge. And I uh, just want you to know in the past several months, just being in partnership with you guys, uh, with House on the Rock Church and, and Teen Challenge, it's been such a blessing. Um, and every single Wednesday and every single Friday uh, that we get together for a service, um, I am so blessed, not just from the words that are spoke, but uh, just from seeing your heart for worship and truly seeing you guys hunger for God and seeking after God has really, in my life, strengthened me and really encouraged me in the past several months just to seek the Lord stronger in my own way. Uh, and I'm grateful to have you guys as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and uh, I'm excited to bring the word this morning. Um, have any of you ever experienced some type of desperation in your life? By a show of hands, if you've experienced desperation in your life at some point, if your hand's not raised, you're probably fibbing. Um, but we've all experienced some type of desperation within our life. It could be desperately waiting for, you know, you're cooking and you're waiting for the food to finish. It's just taking a little bit longer and you're smelling it and you're like, man, I could really go for that right now. Uh, maybe it's desperately waiting for a new movie to come out. You're like, yeah, I love Marvel. Can't wait for that new Marvel movie to come out. Uh, maybe it's desperately uh, wanting your team to win, you know, the World Series, the Dodgers just won last night. Uh, maybe you were rooting for the other team, and you were like, oh, I desperately wanted them to win, that was me. Um, I've played softball and uh, basketball with several of you guys, and I've desperately wanted to win against you, and I've desperately seen you guys take out your aggression and win against me, all right? Um, it could be desperately waiting in line at the drive-thru, you know, when you order like a 20-piece McNugget and then uh, you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and then they say, hey, sir, can you pull forward, please? And it drives me nuts. Like, I'm desperately waiting for these nuggets. Like, but we've all experienced desperation. We, we can experience desperation on a deeper level, too. Those are surface-level things, right? But uh, we could desperately want to go and do the wrong thing. We can desperately want to fill a void or satisfy a need within our lives. We can desperately want pain that we are experiencing to go away, desperately wanting to get better or to feel better, desperately wanting to be recognized or appreciated, desperately wanting or needing help within our lives, desperately wanting things to change, desperately wanting a fresh start, desperately wanting and desiring God to take action within your life. Whatever it may be, we have all experienced desperation to one degree or another within our lives. I know I've experienced desperation numerous times this week alone. I've sat in traffic this week, and I've, you know, been desperate to get out of traffic. Uh, I've had family conflict this week, and I've been desperate to get out of that family conflict, to get out of the toxicity of arguing and all that stuff. Uh, tiredness. A couple nights ago, I was just tossing and turning all night, and I was desperate. I was like, Lord, help me get a few hours of sleep. Thank God he did, but I was desperate to get that sleep. Again, desperately wanted the Tampa Bay raise the win last night, but it didn't work out. But I've experienced desperation this week as well, and desperation is defined uh, by Professor Google as 
a state of despair, a state of lost or absent hopelessness leading to rashness, acting hastily or quickly without much thought. And some of us are here this morning in a season of desperation or despair. Some of us are here and we're experiencing despair this morning. Some of us are in a place where we do not see hope in our situation. Some of us are here and uh, we are in a place where we are about to throw in the towel and, and call it quits. Some of us are here and in a place where we do not see an end to the pain we are experiencing, the, the suffering we are enduring uh, we don't see an end to the tough situations that we are facing in sight. Some of us are desperate for something to change this morning. And God wants to do that within your life. He does. And the title of my message this morning is, Despair, Where Is Your Sting? Despair, Where Is Your Sting? If you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 21. And I've read this passage of scripture dozens and dozens of times, and this week as I've been reading it again, God just continues to hammer stuff into me. And I love reading the word and knowing that I haven't arrived, even at 23 years old. I, I love that because uh, I love when God reveals new things to me and, and, and cuts me deep with his truth and with his word. And um, so we're at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And so just to give you a little background before we dive into the text, uh, this was during a time when Jesus was extremely popular. He was pretty much at the height of his earthly ministry. There was talk and there were rumors of what Jesus had done. Uh, there was talk and there was uh, rumors of, of the stuff he did. The stuff he did was unheard of to people. The healings he did was unheard of to people. The teachings and the things he would say were so radical to people that it was unheard of. And he was growing very popular. And so uh, he was becoming popular quickly. And with that, there were a lot of people who were in need. There were a lot of people in desperate situations. There were a lot of people who believed that Jesus could help them, that Jesus could fix the things in their lives, that Jesus can make right. And so there were also people who believed Jesus could bring healing in a situation of hopelessness. And so that's where we're going to pick up in Mark 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. He was saying this desperately, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. And he went with them, and a great crowd thronged about him. So what's happening here? Um, Jesus is with his disciples. He just arrives in Galilee. And there was a great crowd that gathered around him because of his popularity. Like I said, he was popular. People wanted to meet this guy named Jesus. They wanted to experience what this guy would say, to experience maybe a healing, a miracle before their eyes. They wanted to, to just go and, and maybe even be associated with him. Um, and so they were, there was a great crowd gathering around him because of his popularity. Then came a ruler of a synagogue, a religious leader named Jairus. His daughter was dying, and he wanted Jesus to come and heal her. He said, Jesus, 
please come heal my daughter. He was desperate. He was in a state of despair. Um, and definitely a time in any of our lives, whether uh, we are Christians or not, if, if we were in Jairus' position, we would be in a state of despair. Right? If our, if, if our, only chi- if our child was dying or something similar to that, we would certainly, Christian or not, be in a state of despair. So he's going to Jesus in a state of despair. So much so that he, it says that he fell at the feet of Jesus and pleaded with him to go and heal her. So Jesus, he goes forth, intending to go and heal Jairus' daughter, but a great crowd continued to flock around him. And that's where we pick back up in verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew much worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood, immediately, notice that, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And I imagine the disciples saying this sarcastically. There's a bunch of people around Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, like, who touched you? Like, there's a hundred people around you right now, and you're you're wondering why someone rubbed you? Like, you know, like, that's normal. That's going to happen. But he said, no, someone touched me with faith. Someone touched me with faith. Someone needed help, and they touched me. Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Jesus is on his way to go and heal Jairus's daughter. He's on a mission to go and heal Jairus's daughter, but on his way there, this great crowd is surrounding him, and in that crowd was this woman who had this disease, uh, it says in the passage, for 12 years. 12 years she was inflicted with this disease. She was subject to bleeding for 12 straight years. Uh, a discharge of blood uh, was just coming out of her constantly for 12 years straight with no stopping. And has anybody ever given blood here? Yeah, a few of us. Uh, if you give blood, you can become like, that's why they make you eat something afterwards, because you become lightheaded. So imagine constantly just discharging blood, though. Constantly. How weak that would make you feel. And so that's what position this woman was in. It was a disease that fully changed her life. It brought her great weakness. It brought her shame. It embittered the comfort of her life. It threatened to be the death of her in a very little time. It was of great misery and great despair to her. It says in the passage that many physicians had advised her. Many medicines were probably prescribed to her. Many remedies were probably said, hey, try this, try that, but nothing worked. It even says that she spent all the money that she had, all the money in trying to go to this doctor or that doctor, just trying to make this stop, trying to make this better. Imagine the despair that this woman was in. Many Bible scholars even believe that um, she was subjected to experimental remedies, things that were kind of unheard of, and they were just experimental just to try to see, well, maybe this will work in healing her. 
And it, those things would be excruciatingly painful, and they would try the body, and it would just make her feel even worse, and it would worsen the situation. She wasn't even able to receive prayer for healing from the religious leaders because she was ceremonially unclean. In the original law, if you know a woman was bleeding, they would say, well, she's unclean. She's unclean. She's no longer allowed to go into the temple. She's no longer allowed to be in there. And so she couldn't even go and receive prayer from one of the religious leaders of the time. Imagine the despair, not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, that this would take on her. This was a disease that put her in a hopeless state of despair and desperation that she saw no end to until she saw Jesus. It was something that began to define her. I imagine people in this area viewing her as the woman who bleeds, right? She, she had this issue for 12 years, so she was probably well-known around the town. This, that's the, oh, that's the woman who, who bleeds. That's the woman with the disease. That's the unclean woman. That's the, that's the woman with the curse on her because she's sick. She even had to define it herself. She had to define herself as such. When, when um, she had to let everyone know that she... Uh, was unclean by proclaiming it. She had to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. If you're going to the grocery store to get some bread, she had to, on their way there, say she was unclean so no one interacted with her. That's the degree in which her life was. One full of despair. Imagine having to do that everywhere you went. Unclean. I'm sick. I'm a sinner. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. No one wants to do that. But yet that's the life that this woman was in. Her desperation defined her in others' minds. It defined it in her mind even. But not in Jesus's. To Jesus it didn't. To Jesus she was just a daughter of God in despair and desperate need of healing. And I have three points this morning. My first one is... In Jesus, your despair does not define you. In Jesus, your despair does not define you. Your despair may seem like it defines you, but it doesn't. Your despair may seem inseparable from you, but it isn't. The world may define you by your despair and by your struggles and by your shortcomings, but not Jesus. You might define yourself by those things, but not in Jesus. In Jesus, your despair does not define you. You are so much more than your desperate situation. You are so much more than the need in which you are experiencing. You are so much more than what you are battling, facing, despairing over, struggling with. God sees beneath your despair and sees you as a true child of his. He didn't define the woman by the despair that she was experiencing and say, he said, daughter, my child, Go and be made well. And he's looking at you with that same way. Son, daughter, go and be made well. So don't allow despair to define you. Allow him to define you. Allow Jesus to define you, not your despair. In Jesus, your despair doesn't define you. And this woman believed with her all that only if she could touch a piece of his robe that she would be healed. That's some pretty radical faith. I've heard of some stuff that, you know, is, is radical faith, but that's probably close to the top of the list. If even I can just touch the bottom of his pants, 
I will be made well. I will be healed. And I explained earlier how this woman was ceremonially unclean in the religious law. And so when she touched Jesus, there was extreme significance in that because because she was ceremonially unclean, everyone that she touched would be unclean as well. And so I imagine if, you know, this woman with a disease would touch someone else that they would freak out because now they're unclean of sorts. So I imagine nobody wanted to interact with her. Nobody wanted to touch her. Nobody. But she touched Jesus. And Jesus didn't freak out. Jesus came to her in love. And um, so for her to touch Jesus, that would mean that in others' eyes, Jesus would be unclean as well. And he didn't care. Though in culture's eyes, it was not right to do for her. She believed that she would be healed, even if it was just a piece of his clothing. Now, if I don't know what desperation is, that's a pretty good definition of it. That's desperation. Sounds kind of crazy, but only if she could touch a piece of cloth that is touching Jesus' body that she could be healed. But she had faith. And Jesus healed her because of that faith. Jesus was on a completely different mission. He was going to help a completely different person. He was going to a completely different location, yet he still took the time to turn and address the woman's despair. Jesus cares about everyone's despair. This morning, I want you to know that Jesus cares about your despair. Jesus cares about what you're going through. He cares about your despair. And my second point this morning is that God can deliver you from your despair if you reach out. God can deliver you from your despair if you reach out. I genuinely believe that Jesus knew about this woman, right? Jesus is on his way going to help out Jairus. He's in this crowd, and maybe he could have bypassed the woman, right? Walked and continued to go on his mission to go help Jairus. And I genuinely believe that Jesus knew about this woman and her disease without even coming into contact or interacting with her at all, right? God is all-knowing. He probably, he knew that this woman was there. And I fully believe that he had the power to deliver her from it, even though he didn't interact with her, right? God is all-powerful, uh, No matter what, he could have done that. But in her taking action, she was able to be healed. Now, I don't know if she would have been healed without touching Jesus' robe, but I know for sure that she was healed when she did. Um, It was something as simple as her reaching out and touching Jesus' robe, but she took action. And I want to ask you this morning, in your despair, are you taking action? Are you taking action? Are you being proactive? Are you reaching for Jesus? Are you seeking for Jesus? Are you seeking for what he has for you? Or are you just waiting for the healing or the resolution to come along like that and without you having to do anything, without you having to put yourself in a position to receive that? And constantly, uh, I'm reminded of just uh, something a, a college professor said to me. He said it's the theology of positioning, and I don't know if it's something he made up, but it made a lot of sense to me, that a lot of times we have to change our position for God to act. 
And what do I mean by that? Sometimes in life, we have to change our positioning to provoke an action in God. If we look in the Bible, we see Moses, right, when the Israelites are in, in a fight, and when he has his arms raised, they are winning, but when he lowers them, they are not. That is the theology of positioning. Theology of positioning is when Abraham has to sacrifice his child, and he surrenders it unto God. That's the, that's the theology of positioning, of putting him there physically, to represent an inward change of his heart, to represent the actions of his heart. Are you reaching out? Are you being proactive about seeking after Jesus? For us, we do not have Jesus' robe in front of us to touch and be miraculously healed by, but what we do have is faith. What we do have is faith. Even if it's just a little bit, it is enough. We just have to take a step and reach out to God and ask him, pray, and believe that he is going to deliver us from our despair. And for some people, it may seem that Jesus is on a completely different radar than you this morning. It may seem like you are so far apart from him, but that does not change the fact that he cares about you, that he sees your pain, that he sees your despair, that he loves you, and that he wants to heal and deliver you from what you are going through. You just have to reach out. And I'm here to ask you this morning, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to reach out? But what about Jairus, though, right? So Jesus is on a mission to go heal Jairus' daughter. He's detoured with this woman, miraculously heals her. That's amazing. This woman who was struggling with this for 12 years now is set free. It's an amazing testimony. But what about Jairus? He was the one who Jesus came to uh, help originally. Asking him for help in the desperate situation he and his daughter, who was dying, was in. And so we're going to continue to read Mark 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, so this is while Jesus is still interacting with this woman, there came from Jairus' home some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So Jesus is on the way to heal Jairus' daughter when he is stopped by this woman. He healed her miraculously. And right after Jesus does this, people uh, reported to Jairus that his daughter was dead and to no longer bother Jesus. They said, you know, Jairus, there's no point. There's no point. Your daughter's dead. Sorry to report it to you. She's dead. Don't bother him anymore. He didn't care to come help you then. Why would he care to come help you now? And Jairus experienced the miracle that he did right before his eyes to this woman. Um, But these guys essentially told Jairus that there was no hope. And this isn't one of my points this morning, but it's just kind of a side note. Um, Watch the voices you allow to impact you. Is the community you're surrounded by one that is faith-filled or faithless? Jairus's was faithless. They told him the news of his daughter, and was that the truth of the matter? Yeah, the truth of the matter is Jairus's daughter was dead. Um, they told him there was no use in bothering Jesus any longer over this matter. They were ready to call it quits. 
But do you want that type of community around you when you're in despair? Or do you want brothers and sisters in Christ that will fight with you, trusting in Jesus until the very end, even when all else seems lost, even when things seem like impossible, even when things seem like it's too far gone, even when things seem like it's, it's too far left field for it to even happen? Do you want brothers and sisters to just say, well, that sucks? Or do you want them to say, no, I'm going to fight with you and we're going to go towards this together? Watch who you allow to impact you. Even Jesus evaluated his community he was with his 12 disciples in this situation, but even he said, I want to go into Jairus' home with only a few of them. He brought three with him. Jesus wanted the ones who were faith-filled to be there with him. In my life, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for faith-filled Christians and followers of Christ and brothers and sisters who came alongside me when all else seemed lost, when I had no hope, when I was struggling, when I was ready to throw in the towel, when I was ready to call it quits. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for those people. In your life, you need those people, so watch who you surround yourself with. Watch the voices you allow to impact you in the community you allow to surround you. So in order for Jesus to help this woman, he had to turn his back on Jairus. Think about that. He's going to help Jairus, and you're Jairus, and you're like, yes, there's hope. Jesus, this guy who can do miracles, he's going to come and heal my daughter. This is great. But then Jesus turns his back and helps someone else. Jairus probably felt neglected during that time. Or he's probably like checking his watch. He's like, yo, come on, man. I got a few seconds before my daughter's going to die here, and uh, you're helping someone else. She's been struggling with this for over a decade, and my daughter who's dying has a whole life ahead of her. You're going to go help her? Probably felt so neglected. He asks Jesus to heal his daughter. Jesus says yes, but on the way, he sees another in help. He helps her, and during that time, his daughter died. Jairus is probably thinking that if you would have helped my daughter and not this random, unclean, cursed woman, then she would still be alive. He probably felt so betrayed. The time that it took to heal this woman was probably the same time it would take for him to get to Jairus' home and to heal his daughter. So really, he was probably jealous. He was probably angry. He was probably even in more despair than before. Some of us this morning feel like Jairus. Some of you this morning feel like God has turned his back on you. Maybe you've prayed for your despair. Maybe you've asked for healing for something. Maybe you've asked for deliverance and nothing has worked. Maybe you've expended every expense even, like this woman did, and nothing has worked. Maybe you're wondering if he still sees you in your need. Maybe you're wondering if he has turned his back on you. Maybe you're wondering if God is still active in your life. Maybe you're wondering if all of this is even just some story and if even if any of this is even real. I've experienced all these feelings numerous times, and I've never lost a daughter before, but I have certainly felt like Jairus. I've certainly felt like in times during my life that God has turned his back on me, that God said, no, I'm not going to help you out right now. I, I'm going to go help that person because they're a little bit more righteous, or I'm going to go help that person because they're in a little bit of a worse situation, or I'm going to go help that person because this, that, or the other. I felt like Jairus. Am I the only one? And Have you felt like Jairus before? Have you felt like God has turned his back on you? And Jesus replies, though, do not fear, only believe. 
Verse 39, and when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And so for Jairus and his family, right, this probably felt like salt in the wound. Like, oh, your daughter's not dead. She's just sleeping. That's like salt in the wound, man. Like, why would you say that? Um, And they laughed at him. And Jesus got a lot of reactions in his ministry, right? Jesus got a lot of reactions. Even if you just look in the Gospel of Mark, which we're reading out of this morning, you would see that demons knew who Jesus was. His teaching and his preaching was considered to be radical. He was considered to be preaching blasphemy, and he was opposed by the religious leaders of the time. Um, He was called crazy. He was criticized for the company he kept. He was criticized for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He got a lot of reactions in his ministry, but never once was he uh, doubted to the point where he was laughed at. Mocked to the degree of laughter and sheer disbelief. Verse 40, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, Jairus and his wife, and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha, Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So Jesus gets to the house. He takes the doubters and the scoffers out of the room. He goes about his business and miraculously heals Jairus' daughter. That's pretty great, right? Heals Jairus' daughter, mission accomplished. That was what... We started at the start of this story, but the passage points out that she was 12 years of age. That's pretty significant because if we were to go back to verse 25, where we already read, we would see that this woman had struggled with this disease for 12 years. And that could be a coincidence, maybe, uh, but how many people know that with God, there's really not many coincidences? Um. The same year the woman received this disease is the same year Jairus' daughter was born. And I just want you to follow with me real quick. See, if this girl was never born, then this girl would never get sick. If the girl never gets sick, then the girl's father never has to go to Jesus. If he never goes to Jesus, then Jesus is never on his way passing by this lady. If Jesus is never on his way passing by this lady, he never stops. If he never stops, then Jairus' daughter never dies. If Jairus' daughter never dies, then Jesus never gets to heal her. And what I'm saying is that while you are waiting, God is working. While you might think, like, you you don't understand the details of the situation, you might not understand the details of what's going on, you might not understand the despair that you're in, but while you're waiting and while you're saying, God, help me in this situation, God, help me here, help me there, he is working while you are waiting. And while you've been waiting, God is still in control. God is the orchestrator. God is the author. God is the one that is in control of the despair you are going through. My third point this morning is that Jesus is the Lord of your despair. Jesus is the Lord of your despair, even when it all seems lost, even when it seems hopeless, and like your despair is going to overcome you, and like there's no way for things to change, that there's no possibility for things to get better, Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is still in control. If he has the power to heal someone with his clothing, 
right? If he has the power to heal someone with his robe, if he has the power to raise the dead back to life, and if he has the power to care and deliver others of their despair, then he has the same power to do it for you. This isn't just some book that we're reading and it's some fairy tale. This is something that's just as true on October 28th, 2020, in this building as it is back then. This is in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Uh, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know that it's not when we start something and slap God's name on it and say, well, God, you know, you started it. But it's when God starts something. When God starts something, when Jesus started this, he's like, I'm not just going to, you know, leave Jairus in the dust. I'm going to go help him. And when God is starting something in your life, he's not going to go leave you in the dust and keep his back turned to you. He's going to help you out. He's going to be with you. Jesus is the Lord of your despair. You know, in my life, I've seen time and time again where Jesus is the Lord of my despair. I know some of you don't really know me that well. Most of you probably don't. Um, when I was 13 years old, there was a flood in my hometown uh, that wiped out my home, completely destroyed it, condemned the house, and uh, my family and I were homeless for about two months. And so I was in ninth grade, and uh, you know, my biggest concern was if a girl liked me or not. And uh, now my family and I are homeless. And um, it was a really tough season for me. It spiraled me into a deep season of depression. And, you know, God provides and God, you know, made a way. Uh, but there was days that I didn't know which bus I had to take home because I didn't know where I was going. Um, I didn't know where I was going to sleep that night. I didn't know if I was going to have a bed or a couch or a sleeping bag. I didn't know what I was doing. And... Um, I became really angry and bitter towards God. You know, my dad was a pastor. You know, I was, you know, in church since I can remember, four years old. But I was angry towards God. I said, God, if you love me, why would you put me through that situation? And I'm sure many of you have been in situations like that. God, if you love me, why would this have happened? I began to disbelieve in God. I would go to church because, you know, my dad's a pastor and I kind of have to. But I hated every second of it. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe that he had a plan for me. I didn't believe that he was the Lord of my despair, that's for sure. And so I began to look everywhere else. I began to look at pills. I began to look at alcohol. I began to look at, you know, things that wouldn't satisfy. And I, like I said, I, I, I got in this deep, deep cycle of depression I got to a point where uh, when I would get home from school, that self-injury would be the only way to, to cope with it. I found out pretty quickly that, you know, mom and dad would see the cuts, so I would burn myself, and I would bruise myself, and I would just, even thinking back on it, just the demonic oppression that that was and the mental battle that that was. But I was in it. I was in despair. And um, one day, I remember, I got home from school, and this is all while I was in high school, and I said, you know, I'm done with this. I'm done dealing with this stuff. I'm done dealing with the despair. I'm done dealing with this tough situation. I'm done dealing with the doubt and the disbelief. You know, I'm in church, and I'm hearing one thing, but I'm experiencing and seeing right before my eyes another. I'm done with it. And so I tried to take my life a few times before, but this time I was serious about it, and I took my own life. And uh, 
Obviously, I didn't because I'm still standing here, but to this day, I'll still look it up every now and then just to make sure, should I be alive right now? Downing that entire bottle of pills, should I be alive right now? The answer is no. But I woke up, and I want you to know that I didn't open my Bible anytime during this time. I didn't bring my Bible to church. I had the Bible app on my phone. That's about it. But that hadn't been touched in probably over a year. And I unlocked my phone after I woke up from all this. And it popped up on the Bible app at Jeremiah 29.11. And it wasn't just some like accidentally, you know, you open up your phone and you accidentally click on something. It's like, oh, that app opened up. It was there. And uh, the verse is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future not to harm you, but to prosper you. And so I know that since that day, you know, I've been through despair since then. I've gone through tough times since then. I've seen despair and tough times in this past year alone, some that I didn't even expect would come my way. But I know that Jesus is the Lord over it all. I know that Jesus has a plan, that Jesus has a purpose, that Jesus is going to make a way, that he's already won the victory, that I don't have to worry about fighting it on my own strength. I don't have to worry about it making sense. I don't have to worry about it being to Levi's liking or to Levi's terms, but it is in God's hands.